0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread.
1: Happy Friday, Food Junkie listeners. Molly here. I just want to give a huge thank you to each one of you in helping us to get to over 250,000 downloads. If you haven't seen our special thank you yet, stay tuned or reach out and we'll let you know where to find it. We're still aiming for 1 million downloads, and we're already more than a quarter of the way there. Keep it up, listen, rate us, review us, and share that podcast as many times as you want. I also want to take a moment to remind you that Dr. Veer Tarman's Sugar and Food Addiction course with Dr. Eric Westman's Adapt Your Life Academy will be live in September, so head over to the Adapt Your Life Academy website and get on the waitlist today. Check show notes or the Food Junkies podcast website for the link. Okay, guys, today, Vera did a solo interview with Dr. Loretta Bruning. They discussed Dr. Bruning's personal and professional journey, neurochemistry and the disease model, neuropathways and reward center wiring, alternative experiences and dealing with life on life's terms, understanding brain wiring and behavior, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphin the Inner Mammal Institute and Inner Mammal Method, satiation, expectation management and distress intolerance, Dr. Bruning's take on addiction and building neuropathways, what's next for her, and our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Bruning.
2: Okay, welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host, for today's discussion with Dr. Loretta Bruning. Dr. Bruning is a professor emerita of management at California State University. And she is also the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. She is author of these books, Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels, Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop, Tame Your Anxiety, the Science of Positivity, I, Mammal, and 14 Days to Sustainable Happiness. After having worked in the realm of human conflict that is integral to the field of management, she began to study not surprisingly, animal behavior. She developed a model of animal and human behavior that looks primarily at our brain neurochemistry as a way to understand the essence of human conflict and cooperation. And we at Food Junkies are interested in her model and how it can be used to understand food addiction and food recovery. So hello, Loretta. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So we always like to start, of course, with the personal story. So tell us how you went from management to this interest in animal behavior to enrich your understanding of uh, animal behavior.
3: Sure. So as I often mention, I grew up around a lot of conflict and unhappiness. And I was always trying to understand, like, what are people so upset about? And I, I didn't really see a lot of evidence for the reasons that people give, you know. And so I was always looking and I put my faith in academic psychology. But. Mm, that didn't really explain everything for me, especially after having raised my own kids and having had thousands of students. So I kept looking and I discovered evolutionary psychology, which is a field that didn't exist when I was in college. And I was also interested in cognitive psychology. Uh And I just saw these different silos, different ways of explaining the world. But I would read a little mention of one little chemical that motivated a certain behavior in animals, and another little mention of a little chemical in a little animal study. And I saw that these chemicals have so much power to create behaviors. And then with our cognitive brain, we create fancy explanations for behaviors that were already motivated by the chemicals and the animal behaviors were so easy to compare to human behaviors even though it's not what we tell ourselves in words. Yeah but I mean you mentioned
2: that you started off with sort of I guess traditional psychology and my understanding about psychology is it's a lot about research and it's often typically about animals like rat research and whatnot
3: right? Yes, but, you know, academic research is often in silos, so you can do a lot of different kinds of rat research, and the person who studies rat dopamine wouldn't talk to the person who studies rat oxytocin, you know, so... So the idea was to find what I call the operating system, the deeper yeah, the op- operating system. Right, okay, that operating system, but but it's also within the context of the other thing you said, which I think
2: is quite unique, and that is the evolutionary aspect. Like, you talk a lot in your writing about, uh, you know, animals like, in terms of the evolutionary development of that, and I, I haven't seen that actually anywhere in the discussion about the, the brain neurochemistry. So please elaborate a little bit more on that. So, yeah, so what, what was the trajectory? So you decided there's these silos, and how did you get to that, to the evolutionary perspective, and then
3: to essentially
2: what you're doing now?
3: Um, I heard about this book called Chimpanzee Politics. Oh my God. And at at a bad moment in my life, I picked it up, and the subtitle of the book is Power and Sex Among Apes. And for anyone who's read like a basic evolutionary psychology 101, this is the stuff that you learn. But that field didn't exist when I was in college. You know, I was studied in the 70s. And animals are very motivated by things that spread their genes. And the motivation is the chemicals spreading the genes is not a cognitive concept because animals are not aware of their genes. But when they have more power, more strength, access to resources, they make more copies of their genes. So natural selection builds a brain that rewards you with a good feeling when you do things that spread your genes. One of them is competing for food because in the animal world, and then this is the other piece of it, I started watching nature documentaries and saw how much and effort animals invest in competing for food and competing for mating opportunities. So it's easy to see why we have such strong emotions about these things. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so yeah, you're talking about chimps and I guess,
2: I mean, that's, that explains us as well. So I guess you took from there that understanding of chimps and then sort of started to uh, attribute that same understanding to us. So but, um, um, if
3: I may add yes. from the chimp book, then there was a yes. gorilla book and an orangutan book. Ah. And those are all apes, but then, there was a baboon book and a macaque monkey book, and oh they gosh. all showed the same patterns. Yes. So that's what I was like, wow, it's not just chimps. It's like a core mammalian brain. The transition for me was ah. there was a book called The Lemur Legacy, because lemurs are a pre-primate, so they are even simpler than monkeys but more complex than rats, sort of like the transitional species Ah. and the same basic patterns of competing like crazy for anything that affects food and mating opportunity.
2: And I, I want you to explain exactly what that template is that you discovered that is in common with all of us. But before you get to that, I'm assuming that your studies in management or your work in management made you then see how this was such a no brainer to understand human behavior too, right? Oh,
3: I see. Well, I know that um, people may have that idea about business and management, but um <laughs> well, a bunch of uh, sort out. Or yeah, I think management and economics is more about how people make decisions, okay, and how people seek to optimize their decision making. And as again, in academia, there's always a focus on the cognitive aspect where you're intellectualizing the decision. And I was learning that the emotional brain makes the decisions in a nonverbal chemical way. Uh And then we come up with fancy explanations to justify decisions that we already made. And a great book on that is called Gut Feelings. Uh It's, It's very scholarly book despite the name. And it explains how like first you have the nonverbal impulse and then you create an explanation that makes your impulse sound good.
2: Okay, good. Well, let's talk about this template or this behind the scenes uh, neurochemistry that you're talking about. Sure,
3: Um, so the chemicals that I kept hearing about were dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. When I say the chemicals, I mean the good chemicals, the, the good feelings that we want. So first, I was amazed to learn That they have a very specific job. They're not meant to be on all the time. Like people say, oh, I have a low level of this as if they should be having a high level of that. But that's not how they're meant to work. They're meant to turn on in a spurt to motivate action when that action is appropriate in that specific moment. So in the animal world, it's very easy to see. Like when an animal sees food, Dopamine turns on and that motivates them to invest the effort and the risk necessary to get the food. When an animal's oxytocin turns on, that tells them to lower their guard because they have social protection. And you're not meant to have that all the time, because if you lower your guard in the wrong moment, then you're dead. So it's it's a specific decision. And serotonin is that good feeling of strength. But in the animal world, if you think you're strong all the time, well, then you're likely to get into a conflict that you're going to lose. So animals only release that feeling of social strength in the appropriate moment. And I found it very liberating to know that these good feelings were not meant to be on all the time, but only in that specific context.
2: Okay. So that's interesting because what you're saying there um, is, I, I don't want to say it conflicts with what I say. because it, it does. does it, it does. Well, but, but like, I mean, the idea is that if we don't have enough serotonin on board all the time and dopamine on board, we're depressed and we need to actually take medication to correct that balance. But but you you have a different perspective, don't you?
3: Exactly. And what you just said is widely regarded as the disease model. And I was quite amazed to learn that this disease model sort of came about in the like mid 80s. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to suggest that it was invented by the pharmaceutical industry uh-huh. and that it's not really based on research and that humans have been around for many millennia before they invented this theory that you're supposed to feel good every minute. And if you don't feel good every minute, it's a disorder and a pill can fix it, right? Uh, Yeah.
2: So in your perspective or the alternative perspective, which is that that these are just appropriate spurts at appropriate times, then my guess is that understanding conflict or, or inability to cope is not about a steady state that's not being achieved, but something else.
3: Yes. So first, when you say the alternative perspective, I'm not uh, affiliated with any other existing perspective. So this model is something I created that does not fit um, people who often refer to themselves as alternative. Just mentioning. Yeah, yeah. So the something else that I also stumbled on is that these neural pathways are built from past experience. So a simple way of thinking of that is like, if you're a squirrel and you find a nut, you're like, wow, this is great. That wow, this is great feeling is dopamine. And that wires you to find nuts more easily in the future. So we, our happy feelings, our good feelings are wired by past experience. So it's not just a matter of, are you up all the time or down, you know, up, down is normal, but what causes your ups? And often we in the modern human world have ups for reasons that are not good for us in the long run, because our brains are wired from past experience. So if someone gave you a lollipop when you were young, for example, and you felt great, that would wire you to expect to feel good from a lollipop to look for a lollipop Mm -hmm. and not to learn other possible ways of stimulating your dopamine. So that was my focus.
2: Okay, all right, um, well, you know, since you mentioned lollipop and that does sort of fit our model of food addiction, how would you, I mean, we we understand food addiction as being wired to, I guess, the heightened experience of dopamine that happens when you eat sugar in whatever version that it is. But can you elaborate in your um, perspective how that might start and then how we can get caught in the dilemmas that we are today, which is that
3: you're constantly looking for those nuts to the point of
2: excluding everything
3: else. Yeah. So, so the human brain is wired by experience. So the, everything else has to be learned, but we all start by learning about food because we're born hungry and we have no way to meet that need. So we cry and crying meets the need. So there's a very complex interaction between social needs and physical needs, and that sense of alarm about your need not being met. So it's all very complicated. And for each individual, it's wired by their own individual experience. So I don't want to overgeneralize, But for one person, for example, you know, a very common example would be that food would be associated with love. Mm -hmm. And so then, if a person is feeling a lack of social connection, they might assume that if they use food in some way, that will meet that need. And they don't learn other ways of building social connection. But then another person may have a sense of threat. And in their past, when they, Ate a brownie, their mind focused on the brownie, and suddenly they felt good instead of bad. And they learned, oh, when you feel threatened, Mm -hmm. you eat a brownie, and that will fix it. So every one of us had the challenge of wiring our core mammalian impulses, which are always seeking to meet needs, including food needs and safety needs. Okay. Yeah, I'm not diseaseifying it, I'm not saying that one person has this perfect wiring and another person has a disorder. But rather, there's no real easy answer because we've all inherited like this endless urge for social protection, this endless urge to find potential threats and run away from them, And even like endless urge to get the high of that first lick of an ice cream. Uh So it's a challenge to manage that.
2: Yeah. Now, one of the things that we um, talk about a lot in the food addiction realm is that it's because the ice cream has a different response than the nut. So, you know, if your first experience was as a squirrel and you get that nut, it's a pleasant feeling. So now squirrel wants to look for nut. But if, if the squirrel finds ice cream instead, it's a heightened experience. And so they're going to remember that more so, right? You, yes. would, you would agree with that. Yes, so, absolutely. So if a person was not living in the food world that we live in today and food was not not as potentiated as spiked mm. dopamine mm. As it is today mm. then we might be able to live in a more moderated less expectant world right like nuts I'm not going to look forward to nuts in the same way as I will ice cream so if all I know is nuts my focus isn't going to be on food that much or will it be if all you know is ice cream then yeah. you're focus will not be on food as much? No, 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 no. If, if all I know is nuts, which are not as oh, exciting. Uh, oh, oh, I see. Um, oh, I see. Other experiences might actually compete. But if, if all I know is ice cream, in other words, processed foods, then that will trump anything out there, I would imagine, right?
3: I see what you're saying, but it's not my perspective. Okay, well, so- the, elaborate, elaborate. Okay, okay. So long story short this uh, sort of like, I'm a victim of modern society mm-hmm. is a very widely accepted mindset today. That is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. You got yes. It. And yeah. once a person goes there, then it's not just ice cream, but they say I'm addicted to social media and huh. alcohol, drugs, you know, whatever is the harmful things that people indulge in. Yes. But imagine how hard it was When our ancestors, like in order to eat bread and butter, like they had to grow the wheat and grind the wheat and like risk that the wheat could get moldy and they would go hungry for that whole season and to make butter. They had to raise the cow and churn the butter. And then gosh, could you get salt? No salt wasn't available or, you know, so it was so hard to get every reward. You had to invest a tremendous amount of effort to get reward. And that's why dopamine evolved to reward you, in advance so that you take the steps necessary to get the reward. Today, we get rewards so easily that we expect then this heightened state of reward all the time. So in my opinion, this is the challenge that comes with having an easier life. And we have to then master this challenge. (laughs) But when you blame society for not giving you that great feeling of reward every minute, then I feel like you're you're externalizing the blame and you're not going to invest the effort it takes to develop the internal control.
2: Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So y- y- you're, you're right. So uh, the addiction model is really saying we are um, uh, victims. victims of modern too easy society. And so it sounds to me like what you're saying is that this is the brain just doing its job. It's just the natural reaction. And if we want to live a better life, we have to acknowledge that and then ourselves somehow become active participants and not just be victimized.
3: Right. So how would you do that? How would you do that? Sure. We are living in today's society. So um, two separate things. So one is to accept that my expectations about rewards are real physical pathways in my brain built from my own past experience. And I can build new expectations about rewards by building new neural pathways, but it takes some effort. And to find rewards that feel good in the short run, but are not bad for me in the long run. That's not, not very realistic. It's not easy Uh because that's why things feel rewarding is to get you going. So it's a challenge. And that's why humans have always sort of quested for that elusive thing. A simple example I use apart from like all the obvious bad substances is collecting. Okay. Collecting is like that thing that you get excited because you're looking for the next one to add to your collection. So if you've ever known someone who is a collector, yeah. you think, oh, you know, it seemed a little weird, like they're obsessed with. But at least it's it's not as bad as like some other substances. Yeah, yeah. that's that natural impulse, and then they could maybe even bankrupt themselves by spending such ridiculous amounts of money on adding things. So the first thing is like self-acceptance to understand that our brain evolved in a world of scarcity. Mm -hmm. And that's why we do this crazy questing thing to trigger that good feeling and to just accept, you know, we're not meant to have peak moments every single moment of our lives. Uh So when my peak moment ends... To say, oh, nothing wrong with me. It's just natural ups and downs. And now it's my job. What's the next thing I could do to take a step toward a healthy reward and enjoy the steps? rather than going nuts over the reward. Right, yeah, I'm just thinking about collecting, like, so people do,
2: you know, collecting of artwork, and I remember when I was younger, I used to collect cow figurines, and there's only so many cow figurines you can get, and then you have to say, enough already, enough with the gifts and the cards and the whatever, but I... Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Okay, so uh, just translating this to the food addiction world then, so here is the standard person who visualizes themselves as victimized, and, you know, I guess in a sense, you could say that they are, are, but but I think you're saying you can't stop there. You have to say, look, this is just because of the way that I was born. I mean, I grew up in a society where there was ice cream right from when I was a baby basically. And so now, um, I have to recognize that this is part of my life history. And so now what do we do with your knowledge? We say recognition, we got this. Now we have to find the
3: patients. Other ways, yeah. other ways to reward yourself. Right. right. So a also, simple example would, yes, go ahead. Well, so if there's a moment when a person knows that they would ordinarily be going to look for an ice cream yeah. and they think about what other rewards can they give themselves. So right. let's just say, I say, watch Netflix for 15 minutes uh-huh. and you do, you watch at Netflix for 15 minutes, you set the timer and then you stop. And then it's like, you really want to know what's going to happen. Yeah. So, so then you go back to your work and you're motivated because it's like after another, hour of work, I'm gonna give myself another 15 minute reward. Okay. However okay. you want to structure it. You almost uh, artificially build it. Yes.
2: Okay. So what about so a, a more typical example would be person is used to eating at eight o'clock at night, they have to have their tub of ice cream or their big bag of chips. It's not just a little bit. It's not dinner. It's post dinner. And now we're saying, okay, you got to stop that. So recognizing that this is a wired process, it's, it's, you know, it's part of their history, recognizing that they're not going to get the same experience, like, so that, because you can't have that peak experience all the time, just picking up on the bits that you've said so far. And then now I've got to find an alternative experience how can I do that when it's
3: like, you know, a tub of ice cream? I just <laughs> <night>. <laughs> Very good. So now you, <laughs> uh, that's, that's like, yeah, your inner mammal is saying, yeah, but that's not a tub of ice cream. Yeah. yeah well, right. first it's like, everyone knows that the instant the tub of ice cream is over, you're back to where you were before. That's so, true. And you can't eat ice cream every minute of every day. So the bottom line is you still have to deal with life in moments when you're not eating the ice cream. Uh So that's the challenge. Now, yeah. she, if I just, can just interrupt you, that is
2: actually the biggest challenge with a, a food addiction is that because even for the person who's eating that ice cream, th- that desire, that pleasure actually diminishes over time so that they're only going for the hope and they never get it. Exactly. So the mo- life in
3: between is
2: intolerable.
3: Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and it's, it's, it's exactly the same with like drug addiction and that the first time you have it. Is so rewarding that it builds the pathway. And yeah. what I say in my books is, as the second time you eat that brownie, it's now not the best brownie you've ever had. Yeah. You know, the first time you had it, it was the best brownie you've ever had. And now every brownie does not live up to that. So now you bring up, though, the other whole half of the whole other realm of life, which is unhappy chemicals. So why does a person eat? Why does an animal eat? So it's relieving hunger. So hunger is cortisol, which we call the stress chemical, but in the animal world, it's a real physical threat. Animals have to eat many, many hours a day in order to not starve because before cooking was invented, food was not nutrient dense, and you had to chew and digest and forage all day to get enough. So yeah. that's why our brain evolved to have that on its mind, you know. So, so, so let me ask you, so is that why a person
2: can literally graze all day? Because we actually have a template that would
3: allow us to think about food or want to eat food. That's half of it. But as you know, we also have a satiation system yeah, okay. that, that breaks that. So you, you yeah. have to develop your satiation system. And that's another thing we should talk about. But so here's the thing. So eating to relieve bad feelings, it's often called emotional eating. Yeah. That's really, I think the core of it. And, and I grew up around that definitely. So when you feel bad, if you have something to eat, before the food gets into your mouth, the minute you start analyzing, oh, should I have chocolate or vanilla? Should I have haagen or Ben and Jerry? Mm-hmm. Then you are not thinking about the threat. So food takes you out of the threat. Right. And in the animal world... They only worry about predators when the predator's actually there, but the big human cortex can anticipate and imagine threats, and the minute you start thinking about your addiction, whatever it is, now you're not thinking about the threat anymore, and that's the addiction, is to push away bad feelings by starting the chain toward the addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. Now that's harder at night, as you know, for a few reasons, but the main one is what it's called ego depletion. You've probably heard this idea that in order to resist an impulse, it takes a certain glucose level in your brain. And with fatigue it's harder to resist impulses. And sleep by definition is lowering your guard. So when you lower your guard, then how can I do that? Then all the boogeymen and all my fears and all my threats come in. So now I'm even more motivated to jump into that bad behavior. Mm -hmm. And so the real challenge is how can I allow myself to feel safe at night so I don't jump into that bad behavior? And that involves going back into looking at your threatened feelings and understanding how they got built. So I'll give you a simple example. You know, yeah. when I was a child, if I was in bed at night, I would hear my parents arguing on the other side of the wall. So that would be one origin that many people have of threatened feelings. Yeah. Another of course is just the letdown of your energy uh-huh. um, allows all of the bad feelings you felt during the day, like he said this and she said that, and he hurt my feelings and she hurt my feeling. So it's dealing with all this. It's not really about the food. Uh Okay. But it's a way to push away
2: the food. Well, you've got a bunch of different motivators there. You've got the protection from the negative thoughts. Plus you've got the anticipation that you might actually feel good. Although that becomes less and less important over time because it doesn't work as well. Okay. That's right. So, the goal then is, is, to recognize that, I guess, protect yourself in that vulnerable state. And then you're saying find an alternative way to assuage your
3: fears and emotional yes. stress. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I'll give you a few examples. Sure. So one of them is, you know, if, you, if you're a person who is in a certain loop where you're always upset about X, then you could make a plan with yourself. I'm going to take the time of day when I feel most relaxed and every day I'm going to spend 10 minutes a day on that problem so that Mm -hmm. you don't leave that to worming you when you're trying to relax. Mm -hmm. Another one, do not do anything upsetting at night. Don't listen to the news. Don't (laughs) read emails from the person who hurt your feelings. Like I, when I go to sleep, I put on something to listen to that's boring that I know is not going to trigger me. Yeah. So all these ways of allowing yourself to feel safe so that you don't use a habit, an unwanted habit as like your defense against feeling unsafe. Okay, good. So can we go uh, go back? Because we got
2: into this, which I wanted to, I do want to, I wanted to talk about it, but I also wanted you to elaborate a little more on your, for the neurochemicals, uh, just for people listening. I mean, we've talked about dopamine and, and serotonin, et cetera, but you have your own evolutionary take. And uh, I just would like our audience or our listeners to hear a little bit more about your, um,
3: your take on each of these. Great. So dopamine is the expectation of a reward. And I'll give you a really funny example. I was with this friend touring a historic place and she told me that she went there when she was a kid and they went to a vending machine to buy chocolate milk. And okay. the machine gave them two cartons of chocolate milk when they only paid for one. Huh. And it was like a, this moment. And now every time she goes to this place, she remembers that. So dopamine is whenever you get more reward than expected, ah, um, yeah. you get that extra search of dopamine. So like, this is better than I've ever tasted mm-hmm. would be, you know, an example of like that extra dopamine and it builds the circuit, but it could be people who climb mountains, you know, is that it's that. Anticipation of a reward. Baking bread, I think, is a good analogy because there are a lot of steps. So that's the anticipation. Then the great smell is part of the anticipation. But you eat enough bread in 30 seconds to really fill your need. Uh So it's like, well, what do I do with the rest of the loaf? So, oh, it's, I make a plan. I'm going to freeze it. I'm going to give it away, whatever. Uh So, or I'm not going to focus on baking bread because I know it's too hard not to eat the whole thing, but it's the anticipation, which is what our brain is designed to do and to get excited about. Moving on. So, oxytocin is what people often talk about as the cuddle chemical or the love hormone. And on the internet, you often hear that it comes from hugging. Mm -hmm. But in the animal world, as I said, it's not safe to let down your guard all the time. So, our brain is designed to make careful decisions about when to let down your guard. And if you hug someone you don't like and don't trust, It doesn't really satisfy you because what you're really looking for is social support. How can you get social support? So we hear a very idealized version of this in today's like internet wisdom. We think other people should support me all the time and, you know, I love them they love me and they should always help me out, but it's not very realistic. And the simple way to think about that is, do you want to follow the herd every minute? No. You don't. So the herd, like you get angry at them because they expect you to be with them all the time and to follow them. But then when you don't follow them, you you go your own way, then you feel like a gazelle that's about to get eaten by a lion because when you distance from the herd, that's a real survival threat in nature. So this frustrating trade-off Uh Between wanting to go your own way and wanting to be with the herd, this is a natural thing that every animal has to decide in every minute. Do I step toward that banana over there or do I stick with the herd where it's safe, but then someone else is going to get more of the bananas? Uh It's a simplistic way of looking at that. And to just have confidence that we have the ability to make that trade-off Rather than feeling like I need to have peak oxytocin at every minute, which is really what a newborn should have but it's not really an adult thing. Yeah, you know, a a really
2: good analogy of that, the way that you're describing oxytocin in in the food addiction world is when people seek recovery and they want to stop eating, you know, sweetened food, but their family is still eating that stuff and their family is making the cake and they want them to have the cake. And the person has to make that decision. Do I want to, you know, step outside of the herd mentality, which is to eat this stuff and say, no, taking the risk that I will actually be shunned or ostracized or laughed at, but they may have to because they've got diabetes.
3: They have to stop eating that stuff. I know what you're saying, but I'll give you a slightly related example. I'm not a big drinker and I'm not actually, I don't really even like sweets that much. If I'm at a party and I don't have a drink, I don't have a split second of interest in what other people are going to think if I don't have a drink. But so many alcoholics, they say, oh, well, you know, if you don't drink, then other people are worried. Like, what's wrong? Why aren't you drinking? Uh Who cares? You know, that's really just an excuse. Like, I need to have a drink because if I don't have a drink, they're going to judge me for some reason, whatever the reason is. It's not necessarily what they're thinking. You may just be using that. Uh-huh. Now, of course, there may a person may have a family where the mother I mean, I had this mother that like she wanted to push food on me yeah. and she was offended yeah. if I didn't eat her food. That is what happens a lot. Kiriani, okay, have you uh, the serotonin? Okay. And yeah. Okay. Serotonin is important because, as you know, we hear a lot about it in the context of, depending on what people are familiar with, either antidepressants or serotonin related. And many people who have even studied serotonin know that 90% of your serotonin is in your digestive system. Yeah rather than, yes, in your brain. And the, the serotonin that's in your brain and your cerebrospinal fluid, it's a totally separate system that doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So what's the link between these two? Mm-hmm. And from studying animals, like when I, when I studied cortisol, the man who first discovered the fight-or-flight wasn't he Canadian? I think he was Canadian even. So he first studied the, the fight or flight response. No, it was he. he said this one chemical cortisol, mm-hmm. it affects like 20 different organs, 20 different metabolic responses. How could yes. that be? Yeah. Well, because they're all related to one specific behavior that promotes survival. So that's how I learned that each chemical, although it has many different physiological effects, they're all relevant to one specific behavior that promotes survival. So Mm -hmm. what is the behavior? Is that animals compete for food in in a rather vicious way, which most people don't realize because we get the warm and fuzzy view of animals. But if you watch nature documentaries, you see that Once an animal is beyond the juvenile state, which could be like three months, Mm -hmm. they will grab food from a juvenile. Uh So animals are very competitive over food. And serotonin is the feeling like I compare myself to you and I say to myself, I'm stronger than you. I can reach for that banana without getting bitten by you. Mm -hmm. And serotonin is released when I compare my strength to your strength and find that I come out ahead. Now, if I think you come out ahead, cortisol is released. And that tells me, whoa, I'm not going to grab for that banana because you will bite me. And I would rather avoid getting bitten than I would rather have that banana.
2: Right. Yeah. Okay. And then and so then instead what I'll do is try to be your friend so that you give me some of your banana.
3: Yeah, but in the in the monkey world, being your friend means that when you get attacked by a predator, I have to fight on your side. Uh So it still evolves some risk and threat, but you do it because food takes a lot of work in the animal world and you have to invest effort and risk to get it. And the more high-value food, which in the monkey world is, it sounds disgusting, but they do attack other animals and share the you know yeah. we say share but it's that the the strongest one shares based on who fights on his side yeah So anyway, the bottom line is that serotonin is confidence in your own strength. Hmm. And you can give that to yourself by having confidence in your own strength. Now, many people who have a victim mindset, they would think, well, it's not fair, blah, 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 you know, all those thoughts. But the bottom line is, if you think that you are king of the world, would you have confidence in your own strength? Well, not necessarily because then there's like thousands of other monkeys trying to take your position and you're constantly having to fight for your position. So no one can give it to you, but yourself. Right. Okay. All right. Can we,
2: can you see how that can be useful in the food addiction world? Yes. Because
3: what were you thinking one moment before you reached for that ice cream? Mm -hmm. Probably if a person learns to wind the tape back is they were thinking, poor me, it's so unfair because they're strong and I'm weak. Uh And we're constantly comparing ourselves to others, keeping score and focusing on the strengths of others. Mm -hmm. Because in the animal world, it's like, that's how you stay safe is If you're stronger than me, I better notice and pull back to stay safe. And so everyone, I know the whole thing about blaming the world for giving you images of other people's strengths, but you are the one who is going there in your own mind and you don't need to. Okay. So there, there, again, you're saying you have to take responsibility
2: yourself by seeing where you can give your own strength or declare your own
3: strength. Yes. And stop dwelling on other people's strengths because they have problems that you probably don't know about. Yes. And even if you did know about them, putting them down is not going to help you. So just remind yourself. And this is what in one of my books I talk about like you can stop what you're doing three times a day for 60 seconds and catch yourself doing something good to build confidence in your own strength. Right. Okay. All right. So let's get to the endorphin piece, the last one. Sure. So endorphin is something many people have heard about in the context of exercise. Uh And I especially live in this community where exercise is considered the path to happiness. But what triggers endorphin, the word means endogenous morphine. It's the body's natural opioid and its job is to mask pain with a euphoric feeling and That happens in the animal world. Like if I have a predator rip open my flesh Mm -hmm. and I'm in pain, but I need to run to save my life, my body releases endorphin and it masks pain for 15 minutes so I can take action to Mm -hmm. save myself. But then after 15 minutes, I need to feel the pain so that I protect my injuries. Mm -hmm. So we are not meant to be on endorphin all the time. Mm -hmm. And to exercise to the point of pain to trigger endorphin is, in my opinion, a very bad survival strategy. Once again, it's something people do to distract themselves when you're feeling bad about life and then you run to the point of pain then you have confidence that you have this one tool, but it's it's a tool that in the long run is going to not only enter your body, but is not meeting your need for dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Mm-hmm. So my belief is that Although exercise is valuable, exercise to the point of pain is not the path to happiness. But I add this one little footnote mm-hmm. that laughing triggers a little bit of endorphin. Yeah. And so giving yourself opportunities to laugh is very good reward strategy. Yeah, good. And just for people who may not know, I mean, sugar has an endorphin effect as well.
2: And that's why people will um, often, when they're hurting, like they have a breakup or they're just so tired, like you said earlier, it can actually mask the pain. But you're right. It doesn't last for very long.
3: Yeah. And then, of course, if you have more, then you're yeah. not really doing anything about the underlying source of pain either. Absolutely.
2: Okay. So those are your sort of central understandings about the neurochemistry. But you have, you have using this information, you designed a platform, which I guess you call the inner mammal method. Is that right?
3: Uh, I call it intermammal institute, Institute intermammalinstitute.org. And within that is the intermammal method. And is that using some of the stuff that we've just talked about in a, like, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So um, it's just 25 simple steps of reminding yourself things that are very small steps that you can just teach yourself that you already have deeply wired habits for seeking each of the happy chemicals and for avoiding cortisol, as everyone does. Mm -hmm. And you can add onto that new habits for seeking them in new ways when you understand the natural job that they're meant to do, but also accept that you're not going to have a peak moment at every moment.
2: Yeah. Okay. And that you could use those 25 steps. You could use that method for something like an addiction to food or anything. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Just wondering if there's some way you can elaborate on that, but you kind of have yeah. already.
3: Sure. Isn't well, it? I can, yeah, I explain. So I have, as you mentioned, this book called 14 Days to Sustainable Happiness. Yeah. That's the one that's most focused on healing addiction. Okay. So a big emphasis is understanding the pathway that you already have because it's a real pathway in your brain. And the reason we rely on old pathways is because they're efficient. The electricity in your brain flows effortlessly into an old pathway, and that's how we decide what is true about the world. We are flooded with more inputs than we can process, and once something just flows into neural pathways that are activating easily, it just feels true. When you try to have a new response to the world, it doesn't feel true because it's so hard to activate new pathways. And the simple analogy for this is that you you speak your native language effortlessly, even though you were not born speaking. It really took a lot of effort to learn. But if you try to learn a new language in adulthood, it's very hard, takes a real lot of work. So your emotional responses to food were wired in when you were young. And you could learn new emotional responses, but it's about as hard as learning foreign language. But if you understand... Like when you're learning a foreign language, you're only learning like one word at a time and you're you're understanding the word yeah. based on your foundation of existing knowledge about the world. Mm-hmm. So my book, 14 Days to Sustainable Happiness, it helps you understand what needs you're trying to meet with your food habit and then design a new habit to still meet the needs in other ways.
2: Are you saying that that could be done in 14 days or like
3: a fundamental piece of that could be done that quickly if you really work? At it? It could, but basically, I would say that I have divided the information into chunks that you could easily learn in 14 oh, days. Okay, like right. For someone who doesn't like to read, and they could read it in a half hour. Uh-huh. And then if you go over that every day, uh, like you maybe have to, let's just say right. hypothetically, I would say go through the book three times, yeah. which would be, you know, I'd more typically say like six weeks then in six weeks, I think a person could do it in like a half hour a day of assimilating this information and thinking about it. Yeah, I, I can see you on your website and
2: in your, I don't know, previous work that you've done that you focus a lot on educational approaches, like in really interesting informatics and drawings, like to, how to really simplify some of these complex interreactions so that it's you can do it probably in a half an hour a day, that sort of thing.
3: Yeah. So could we talk about satiation because you might know more earlier. Yes. Yeah. You might know more about this than me and you might have strategies about this too. Mm -hmm. So I've really learned that when you're hungry and then you eat something, it takes 20 minutes for your brain to get the message but you've really eaten enough in about 2 minutes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you going to do for those other 18 minutes to not overeat? So uh-huh. that's my strategy. So so I'm saying, I'm going to eat for 2 minutes, I'm going to have a giant glass of water, and then I'm going to go like read a novel for seven the rest of the other 17 minutes uh-huh. so that I'm enjoying myself uh-huh. so that I still have reward value without overeating uh-huh. and then I tell myself if I'm still hungry then I'll eat more but first let me give myself the time to see whether I'm really hungry or not yeah that, so Just that's an the, example
2: that's the satiation piece how, how you can make that work for you instead yeah okay one of the things that you talked about that I thought was kind of interesting beyond the, uh, the sort of central concepts of each of the neurochemicals was some of the tough choices that we have to make. And, you know, like oxytocin versus dopamine or serotonin versus oxygen. And I just wondered if there was something useful there for the food addiction model. So I don't know, is there, do
3: you want to talk a little bit about those hard choices? Sure. So back to the whole concept of, Our happy chemicals are not going to flow all the time. Yes. We have difficult decisions to make. Yes. And when you let's say fail, to use the colloquial response, when you fail to get the happy chemicals you want, it's not a disorder. Doesn't mean something's wrong with you. Everyone has the same problem. And that's why I like to see how monkeys have the same problem. So let's say I'm a monkey and I want that banana. So here's the idea. As I mentioned, like a conflict between dopamine and oxytocin. If I go toward this banana, that's far away then a predator might eat me because I'm losing the oxytocin of being protected by the group. But if I stick with the group, Then I I always use the example like if you're a gazelle and you stick with the group, then you're always eating grass that has been peed on by others, and it's really true. I mean, they really they don't want to eat grass that's been peed on, and that's why the herd has to keep moving. So it's like frustrating. Like part of me wants to get away from you guys, and part of me is scared to leave you guys. Uh So this frustration. This doesn't mean something's wrong with your life or something's wrong with society. This is like every animal is making that decision every minute and we've inherited a brain designed to okay. sort of weigh that right. us. So, so,
2: so these tough decisions are, you're really just recognizing that these are the natural phenomena that happen in normal life, just like the fact that you can't have a, as the same neurochemical high all the time. These are exactly. just life things. So really what you're saying is, you know, it is what it is and let's just work with it. Like in a
3: taking responsibility, figuring out what it is you have to do and then just doing it. And being realist, having realistic expectations. Whereas I feel like the victim model makes it sound like everybody else is happy every minute, or in this utopian world, you would have been happy every minute if society hadn't messed you up. And another one of these frustrating trade-offs is between serotonin and oxytocin. Mm -hmm. So oxytocin is, I want to be in the group, but then once a monkey finds a group, They're at the bottom of the group. No, they don't want to be at the bottom of the group. They want to be higher up in the group. But then what happens eventually if you get higher up in the group in in human life is like, oh, now I want a better group. Uh (laughs) So... People are always looking for more. And again, taking responsibility that you're the one that's looking for more. So don't blame the world for doing that to you and just accept that every monkey is doing the same thing. Right. And you think, oh, why am I at the bottom of this group? It's so unfair. Or my group is not as strong as that other group and it's so unfair. This is um monkeys have this dynamics all the time. Okay. So would it be fair to say then that uh, uh
2: in in this model that addiction is really just um expectations unrecognized and if we kind of got around that we could deal with our addictions much better.
3: Yeah, it's sort of like it addiction is sort of fast easy way uh-huh. to manage the natural frustrations that our brain creates. Uh-huh. And it's sort of understandable that everyone would have some addiction or other because our brain wires by adolescence. And what adolescent is not going to want a fast, easy solution, right? And who's going to care about the long run consequences of that behavior Uh when, why is an adolescent in such a hurry? So in the monkey world, you see that if they don't get mating opportunity fast, Uh they might get Um, killed by a predator and their genes are wiped off the face of the earth. Uh So the animal brain is like, I got to get me my share Uh right away Uh before it's too late. And that's sort of the adolescent mentality. And then as our human brain gets more filled up with knowledge about the potential long run consequences of whatever those adolescent choices you made, Then you start worrying. Then you have the the new adult worry. Then you have the old teen worry that somebody else is going to get ahead of me. So now you're balancing all those worries. Right. So
2: again, I just want to like in a way to summarize for our listeners. So food addiction just being one of the many addictions that exist out there, invitations for us to build these expectations. So really like we're teenage chimps and we have to sort of grow up and recognize that there's inherent frustration in our brain and out, out there in the community. And once we got that, then we can learn to maybe not rid ourselves of addiction,
3: but recognize what it is. It's just a response. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and it's, it's a set of neural pathways yeah. that were myelinated when you were young in the yeah. same way that your native language so it comes to you easily yes but that you could build new pathways for new responses but that's as hard as learning foreign language exactly and essentially it's hard as as
2: hard as growing up basically um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. So what else? So we talked enough about that. So what's new for you? you? You've done this. I know you just got your website redone, I think. You've written a number of books. Is there anything
3: new upcoming for you? Well, I have to keep doing new stuff to keep up my dopamine yes, and right. you not know, get dragged down with all the negativity around me. Yeah. So I come up with a new project. So you were, doing comedy for a de- while. Hmm? you were doing comedy for a while. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have, I, mm, I haven't, I don't think I've done a lot of that uh, lately. That would be fun though. Maybe I'll, yeah. So I need to balance, you know, fun stuff. Um, writing books is my own addiction. Like I, I like that. But then I just like every other addiction, it has its flaws. Like it's, it's sort of an excuse to shut out the world. Uh-huh. And then I could just keep writing books, but then people might not read them. So that's why I have to keep pushing myself to overcome that. So I'm trying to always create resources that are not just books for people who don't like to read. So I made a video series and that was very Ah. popular. So I decided to make a new video series and this one is going to be more of a formal course that I'm even going to charge a small amount for. And like the other one, it's it's intended to be fun and funny and make it easy to learn about how your brain works and how you can rewire it. So okay, that's
2: good. I, I, I didn't know about your video courses, but I, if it's anything like your infographics and stuff, that I think people, you should definitely look into it. Okay, so we have a signature question as our final question. It looks like, are you looking for something that you want to show us or tell Uh,
3: us? Yes, actually, I was going to put in the chat a link to my, um, this is the free video series that I have on YouTube.
2: Okay, great. Okay, we'll put that in our show notes. Okay, so the signature question. If you could tell a younger version of yourself something about human behavior or maybe
3: food addiction, but human behavior, what would it be? a younger version of yourself. Sure, sure. <laughs> so I had a lot of social anxiety when I was young. I know today is often like diseaseified, but then when you talk to people, you realize everybody has social anxiety huh. when they're young <laughs> because when you're young, you're weak compared to other people are stronger. So why wouldn't you? So I was torturing myself by creating like assumptions, like criticisms, I would criticize myself and project it onto the other person. They must think I'm this. They must think I'm that. And like, what a waste. And then one day I realized how I was doing that. I was giving a talk and I realized that one person in the audience had a scowl on their face Mm. and I was just focusing on that one person the whole time. Uh Like I'm drawn to the person who's criticizing me. That's like insane. So that was such a simple proof of how I'm creating the negativity And there's like a whole world of other people who are smiling. Why don't I just focus on them? Uh-huh. So, so that's what I wish I learned like a few decades earlier.
2: Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bruning. So I mean, really your evolutionary perspective of the neurochemistry and how that can be used to understand addiction. That's really what we talked about today. So thank you so much for sharing your information and your time with
3: us. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Great questions. Okay. Bye-bye.